Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming back and joining me tonight here on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and I'm very excited tonight because I've got three really good friends that I get to talk with tonight and share with you over the next hour or so. And my first guest tonight is going to be Chris Sheehan. And over the course of Chris's career, he's, you know, A, been a great playing professional. He won the 2003 Western New York PGA Section Assistant Professional Championship. As a teacher, he's worked alongside, you know, three of the very best instructors in the game. We'll talk a little bit about that. And he's done so at some of the best courses that we have to offer here in the States, right? We got He's got Bighorn Golf Club, Oak Hill, to name just a couple. He's now at Lebanon Country Club up in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. So we'll talk about some of the storied golf courses that he's worked at and hear some of the stories from his time being there. We'll talk about some of the great instructors he's, uh, you know, been alongside. Plus, we'll get some tips from our game and some of the things. Chris is a great junior instructor, and he's got some camps going on right now, so we'll talk a little bit about that as well, and he'll join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from my favorite author and former TV producer for ESPN and the Golf Channel, Keith Hirschland. Keith's wife, oh, by the way, his wife, Sarah, lovely wife, Sarah, was recently named president and CEO of the U.S. Olympic Committee, right? She was previously the chief commercial officer over at the USGA. So we'll talk about Keith and Sarah's big move. We'll also talk about some of the things that Keith has been putting out on social media regarding TV coverage of the tournaments out there on network TV, right? How they're falling short, both on the PGA and LPGA tours. I also want to get Keith's take on the media coverage of every move that Tiger Woods makes, right? I was disappointed with ESPN's headlines following the Open Championship. There are three top headlines on their mobile app all about Tiger Woods, who, oh, by the way, finished tied for six, right? And, you know, a great accomplishment for Tiger in his comeback, not taking anything away from Tiger. But we got to remember, Francesco Molinari won the event. It would have been nice if one of those headlines might have mentioned that Molinari won the, won the Open Championship. It's sort of like the media is so desperate to get Tiger Woods in the news and make him the story that the guys who actually are winning tournaments are sort of secondary. Get Keith's thoughts on a whole, that and a whole lot more when he joins me a little bit later on in this half hour. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a return visit from Terry Kaler. Terry has, you know, been a lot of things in the golf industry. First of all, he spent many, many years at the Ben Hogan Company and, and including a couple as their president and CEO for a little while. You may also know Terry as the wedge guy from the you know, many articles that Terry has written, plus his blog of that same title. Terry is the guy who created the VSOL design. We heard Scott Scott White, uh, you know Ben Hogan's current CEO, who joined me last week, we, we heard Scott talk about that VSOL design. Well, that was Terry's baby, if you will. So we'll talk about that and you know get some tips from Terry about, about our wedge play, how to make sure that we've got the right wedges in our bag, how we can figure out if we have the right wedges or not. We'll talk about bounce and a whole lot more when Terry joins me about 45 minutes from now. So a lot more great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. Again, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me, like I say, over the next hour or so. But before we get started, I want to remind you about our good friend Matthew Lawrence and his show, Backspin Golf which airs Sunday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time. It's my regular Sunday, 8.03 a.m. Tea Time. It's broadcast on WLXG, ESPN Radio, AM 1300, up in Lexington, Kentucky. And you can stream it by going online to WLXG.com or by downloading the WLXG app. Matthew does an outstanding job, and it's a great way to start your Sunday mornings. His equally fantastic twin brother, Mitchell, also has 
a wonderful golf show that marries golf and travel. It is called Talking Golf Getaways, which you can find online over at golfnewsnet.com or over on Audio Boom or really anywhere you consume podcasts. He and his co-host Darren Bunch travel all over the world and let you know about the great places, you know, that they go to play, stay, and even eat while you're out there. Again, it's called Talking Golf Getaways, and you can stream it on golfnewsnet.com or over on Audio Boom. And, folks, you know we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our good good friend Steve Rondonero about the great things they've got going on up there. Play legendary golf at French Lick Resort, the only place in the country where you can play courses by two Hall of Fame designers on the same property. Our Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses offer two very different challenges. Experience them both and save with our Hall of Fame package. Our two historic hotels are unique as well. Cap it off with a fun visit to the French Lick Casino. Check us out online at FrenchLick.com. Bring a group and save even more. Play legendary golf this season at French Lick Resort. Yeah, folks, be sure to go online to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself what a wonderful place they have up there and to book your stay as well. I also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. All Ben Hogan irons, wedges, they're all handcrafted one at a time at their Fort Worth, Texas factory. No mass production, no shortcuts. You can now order custom-made irons, wedges, and hybrids at BenHoganGolf.com. They build their clubs to your specification and, best of all, charge you a fraction of the typical retail price. Check out their complete line, again, of forged irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, bags, and accessories by going online to BenHoganGolf.com. We're also proud to be partnering with Russ Holden and the wonderful folks over at the Caddy for a Cure Foundation. One of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service members and Fanconi Anemia. You're going to get to walk side-by-side with your tour player experiencing professional golf as an insider. In addition to this amazing experience that you're going to have, you're going to get a fantastic gift package from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logo apparel and an eyewear package, a tour-grade caddy bib, which is suitable for autographs and framing, a 10-cup ball marking gift, and Chef's Cut Real Jerky. Plus, you're going to get professional photographs from your day. They currently have spots open to Caddy for Jason Day, Rory McIlroy, Brooks Kepka, and Justin Thomas. Go online to Caddy for a Cure. That's C-A-D-D-Y-F-O-R-A-C-U-R-E, CaddyForACure.com, to learn more. All right, now back in making his fourth appearance with me here on the French Lake Resort guest line is Chris Sheehan. Let me remind you about Chris's background. He is from Warwick, Rhode Island. He attended Trinity College over in Hartford, Connecticut, where he was the captain of the baseball and hockey teams, and he was all-region and all-American nominee in both sports. In golf, Chris won the 2003 Western New York PGA Section Assistant Professionals Championship and tied for 38th at the TaylorMade Adidas National Assistant Professionals Championship later on that same year. He spent six seasons working alongside three of Golf Digest's top 100 instructors, including Two of Claude Harmon's son, Billy and Craig Harmon, plus Todd Stones as well. 2009, Chris was the PGA South Florida Section's Private Club Merchandiser of the Year. He's also been the president of the Southwest Florida Chapter of the PGA Professionals. He's been a PGA professional since 1999, and he's worked at clubs like Bighorn Golf Club, Oak Hill Country Club, Inverness, Tuscany Reserve Golf Club, Getaway Golf and Country Club, Pelican's Nest Golf Club, and now 
head professional at Lebanon Country Club up in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. And I'm excited to have him back with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Chris, how you been, my friend? Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, I've been great, and you're absolutely welcome. It's a pleasure to be on, and I uh, appreciate the invitation. I'm on, uh, let's see, hole number, I'm on my fourth round with you. I'm looking forward to it. I <laughs> appreciate it very much, Chris. <laughs> so, Chris, uh, catch us up. What's been going on with you so far this year? Oh, well, you know, I've, our last talk, um, I was relocating from Florida uh, to Lebanon, Pennsylvania, to a, a club called Lebanon Country Club. It's a, it's a club celebrating its 98th anniversary this year. It will turn uh, 100 in, 20, in, let's see, 2020. Um, it's just a fantastic place. It's got fantastic people. It's got fantastic history. Uh, the golf course is, uh, as I like to say, unfortunately, because uh, I'm a Red Sox fan, but we do have the Yankee Stadium of the area. It's just always in immaculate condition. The greens are always perfect, and the fairways are perfect. And the people here are just golfers. You know, it reminds me of why why I wanted to come back north, was to just be part of a, a community that uh, – so much loves its 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 club uh with uh three or four generations of members um it's just been a, a joy uh my wife and the kids have done great we're thriving in our new neighborhood we've been so well received by the members uh they're just so nice uh and i've shared that story with you uh, two years ago when we were making the move it's just the nicest collection of people that uh that we've ever been around and uh to be their pro and be their steward of the golf and to be their ambassador of fun, uh, it's just been a blessing. And we're, you know, unlike, we're just trying to grow. We're not, we're not, uh, any different from any other club in America that we're, you know, we're, we're going through some changes. Uh, we're either keeping up or, or, or getting beat. So we're, we're, we're hiring a, a talented collection of professionals at the club, whether it's in the clubhouse and in the golf department and the sales department. And we're trying to, 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 you know, sort of take Lebanon into the second hundred years of its existence. And it's, uh, it certainly has its challenges, but it takes people with passion and energy. And I will provide that, you know, as best as I can. And, uh, hopefully we can get it over the hump at, at a hundred years and then get it set up for the next hundred years. So it's been, been really, really fun and tremendous to be a part of. And Chris, as you mentioned, the age of the golf course, right? But, you know, talk about what, what the golf course design looks like. It's a, it looks online like a fabulous, it's an Alexander Finley design. So uh, talk a little bit about the golf course itself and, and uh, the tradition that's there. Yeah, you know, it's an Alex Finley. Uh, you know, historically, he and he and Donald Ross always argued over who did what. And, and Finley's famous line was, yeah, Donald wrote it down on a napkin, but I built it. And that was sort of his barb to Donald Ross as he came through the Northeast, just like Donald Ross did. It's, you know, it's on a perfect rectangular piece of property. When it was built, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, they did, uh, the, the people that did build it had the foresight to put the clubhouse almost in the geographic center of the property. So you've got nine holes on the north end and nine holes on the south. Um, it, it, when it was built, it had a horse track. It, it was now the current range. Um, and it's just a wonderful, maxed out 6,700 yards. It'll never get any longer. Uh, it's just, but you gotta move the ball. You gotta hit it right to left. You gotta hit it left to right. It's got, uh, you know, the old push up greens. And they're always fast and they're long is always dead. And, uh, you just gotta learn how to play. And, uh, 
you got to learn how to hit things with less spin into these greens. you got to learn that you can miss on certain sides and you can't miss on others. And it's just really well designed, and it has, uh, you know, stood up over those 98 years. It's still uh, we're called upon every year by the Pennsylvania State Golf Association, which you know has has a, a very storied collection of facilities to choose from. But you know, a couple of years ago we had the state senior match play, and, and this year we had the state open qualifier, and we've been tapped to host the 2020 ladies uh, amateur championships, both in the the regular division and the seniors. So uh, they know what the, when they need a quality golf course to host a golf tournament, that uh, Lebanon Country Club in this area in South Central Pennsylvania is the stop that they want to make. And they continue to call us every year, and we're proud of that. And uh, the members take great pride in hosting those events. They love to showcase how difficult the golf course is to those that have never seen it. Because you would think it's very benign, but it's actually quite difficult because you got to hit a lot of shots, and you got to be a great putter, and you got to know where to miss. Chris, switching gears just a little bit, and uh, you sent me a picture a little bit earlier tonight, and uh, it's of you working with the junior golfers and uh, some drills that it looks like you were working on with them. But first of all, talk about your junior golf program there and how that's been going. Yeah, the junior golf program has been uh, certainly one of the proudest things that, it, that that we've been able to accomplish as a team in, in 18 months. Last year, we had our junior registration night. We had 22 kids sign up. And throughout the course of the year, we ended up having almost 55 come through it. And this year, we've had more than 80 kids come through the program. So uh, in, in two short summers, we've been able to quadruple the participation rate uh, of our kids. Um, it, it's just been an unbelievable thing to see. We, we, we designed the program to be in the evenings so that the parents could drop their kids off and go play which has worked out really well. We do our, our juniors on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, and Tuesday night is our men's league night, and Thursday night is our ladies' league night. So on Tuesdays, uh, the men drop the kids off, the ladies go into the clubhouse and have dinner, and, and the kids get come play some junior golf, and then they all meet up for dinner at the end, and on Thursday nights, the ladies get a turn to come play golf, and the men hold the kids for the night, and they meet up for dinner at the end. So we're really creating a... a reviving the family culture that I think went a little bit, uh, went a little defunct here for a while, uh, because you have, you have clubs that are 100 years old and they can get complacent at times. And, uh, and sometimes you just need a little bit of energy and enthusiasm and some forward thinking and say, you know what, we need to survive by, by growing the game here, whether it's at our own club and also in the community. You know, we're the host of the Lebanon County Junior Championships. We host a, a high school team. Uh, we host two collegiate teams uh, at the course. So, we're doing our best to facilitate the growth of the game with the children and the junior golf program here has just been uh it's been a miraculous turnaround and it's needed at five thirty every Tuesday and Thursday that the members who are getting ready to, to tee off in their league they can see, you know, sort of a, a Pied Piper sort of visual of, of a couple of staff and, and the forty or fifty kids just marching in a line out to the range. It's really been fun and it's really really something we're proud of. And Chris, it looked like a pretty interesting drill you had the kids working on tonight. Some sort of tubing was around the perimeter of the green. What 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 was that for? What would you what uh, type of uh, drill were you working on with those guys tonight? Yeah, we we, we build it. We build the, the the game from from the putting stroke. And and what we what we use is in putting is we say take a good grip, feet together, one step, two step, tick and talk. 
And tonight we were working on some chipping. And chipping, we try and reinforce, is, is, is a putting stroke, but it's from a, a biased lean position towards the target. So that when the club start, first starts to move, it works up. And then as it works its way down, then the putting stroke, it actually works its way down into the ball. So those little dollar store tubes is a, bit, is a two-inch sort of height that if they lean and if they make an effective putting stroke from that biased lean position, then the first thing the ball does is it pops in the air. And a lot of beginners and a lot of kids, they think when they have to get it in the air, they, they try to lift or lean backwards to raise it. And it's just positive reinforcement. It gives them something visual uh, to succeed over by giving it their good grip, their feet together, their one-step, two-step lean, and then they're tick-and-tock, and it just sort of pops the ball over the, over the little tube. And they see pretty good instant success, and it just reminds them that lifting is not part of the game. And Chris, in a world where, for all of us, and particularly for kids, our attention spans are probably shorter than they've ever been. How do you keep kids, you know, involved, excited about the game, and make the game fun where they are looking forward to and continue to come back to whether it's the camps that you have, the group lessons that you have, or just simply playing the game? Yeah, one of the things we do with with our kids' camp, it's eight weeks, but we never tell them what the, what we're going to do. Um, so they don't assume that, oh, it's boring or I don't want to go to that one. We would never let them know what we're going to do. And they always find out when they get to the range. We always have that three-minute walk where they show up and they're like, what are we doing tonight? What are we doing tonight? Well, you'll see, you'll see. And so when you introduce tubes and things like that, it's something that captures their their attention. We Last, uh, last week we were working on uh, pitching on the range. So we, we have these inflatable pools and one's a donkey and one's a, a dinosaur and one's a turtle and one's an elephant and we fill them up with water and they work on practicing their pitching technique but it's to a fun target and if they make the pitch shot at the correct distance and the correct speed then their ball sinks into the pool of water and we have contests uh, we use tennis balls where I go out into the field with a baseball glove and they hit seven irons and they've got to hit it a certain distance so that I can catch it uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we did that tennis ball drill, and I said, if I can catch five in ten minutes, then I'll buy everybody ice cream. It got to be almost like an NFL overtime atmosphere with kids <laughs> saying, come on, hurry up, hurry up. And we ended up doing it. We ended up catching five balls out of about 25 shots with tennis balls at about 60 yards. And uh, things like that to keep them engaged. It's not always about golf, but there's so many relative sports to golf or, or motions in golf that are relative to other sports. And we want to let them know that it's okay to play with tennis balls and it's okay to hit balls into a, a pool that looks like a turtle. And it's okay to, to throw down a, a, you know, a dollar store noodle and practice your chipping. That there's, there's fun activities in learning and there's different results from that. And when they go play the golf, when they go get on the golf course and they come across a shot, they can say, Oh, this is the turtle shot. Oh, this is the, the, the dollar store noodle shot. Oh, I remember this is my tennis ball swing. And, and it sort of takes away some of the, some of the frustration or maybe some of the fear of playing on a big time golf course by relating shots that they come across throughout their round as to fun things they've done when they've learned the game. And Chris, you know, the game can be frustrating for all of us, especially when we're not playing well. And, and, and I think it probably is even worse for junior players because on, on the mental side, 
How do you keep them positive and not getting down on themselves, whether if they're having a rough night, you know, in, on the practice range or you've got them out on the golf course and they've had a couple of rough holes? How do you keep them more positive than being negative and getting down on themselves and the game? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I can't break 80 right now. <laughs> So it's it's one of those things where you know, I'm not playing and I go out there and I I try and you know play some golf and I hit some of the worst shots I've seen in years and uh, part of it is expectations I think one of the things that that a lot of good golf facilities do is they create junior par scorecards um, you know to to send a, a six year old out at the 150 yard marker on a par four and say make a four is just it's unrealistic and. Kids like adults are results oriented, and when they see they made an 11 and they were supposed to make four, uh, that that gets them down. So if you make that hole a par eight, then all of a sudden that score becomes a name. It's a triple bogey, which is some of the things that the good golfers get. You know, there's no name for something that's seven or eight or nine or 12 over par. So you try and have an appropriate scorecard so that kids can say, "Oh, I made a five, even though it's a hundred yard hole. It's a bogey." That gets them into the verbiage of the game. It gets them into thinking about this is what I'm supposed to score. You know, uh, we talked about this about my Florida golf course when we were, we're doing the, the scoring tees. It's not, it's not just what you shoot. It's are you playing a golf course that fits your ability, and do you have realistic expectations about what you're supposed to shoot? And the staff and, and professionals throughout the country can help by having a realistic idea of what what a six-year-old par should be for a 100-yard hole and what a 10-year-old par should be for a 100-yard hole. And, and then you gravitate towards the nine and then you gravitate towards the 18. But success obviously starts at an early age. We start them out in four holes, then we play six holes. We have divisions of that, and we have nine holes and 18 holes. And we make sure that the kids are playing the appropriate number of holes and they have the appropriate scorecards when they do play. And And you just make sure that they understand that, hey, I'm not supposed to make what Tiger Woods made. I'm supposed to make what I'm capable of making. And I think having those that, that sort of even level of expectations with, with their in, inside their head calms them down quite a bit when they play. So let's ramp that up to the, you know, the everyday members. Do you do that? Do you extend that to, to the members? Maybe not appropriate scorecards and that sort of thing, but do you look for ways or, or does Lebanon Country Club try to make sure that we're playing the appropriate tee or the appropriate length? To make sure that you know, we're not only are we bringing more juniors to the game, but we're bringing more ladies to the game, and then we're bringing more members into the club because now you know we've got whether it's appropriate tee length or yardages or that sort of thing. Is it? Have you gone that far? We have. You know, the club it's not complete as, as everything you know takes time. It takes it takes money. And uh, the club has over the past four or five years uh, dedicated some resources to. Uh, to building, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, senior tees. We call them our green tees. We have about eight or nine completed green tees. Um, so we have uh, a blue, a white. We have a combo tee. We have the green tee. We have an Our ladies tee. But, you know, again, as, as you said about attracting people to the game, it's also important to have tees like that for retainment of golfers because it's, it's one thing to, to be a 15 handicapper when you were 60. And then to be a 30 when you're 70, you know, when that 70-year-old can still hit it good, he just doesn't hit it anywhere. So the golf course he's always used to, I play the white tees, I play the white tees. Well, he, if he moved up to the greens, 
he could hit a drive and have a chance to reach a, a par four in regulation and have a chance to two putt for that regulation par. You know, I once told you that story about Claude Harmon when he was at Oak Hill playing with his right. three sons. And they, they all hit from the blue tee on the first hole of the west course. And the father got out uh, of the golf cart and walked up to the red tees. And they said, Dad, what are you doing? That's the ladies' tees. He says, no, this is my tee. I've been hitting fairways and greens my whole life, and I'm not going to stop, stop now. So there's a little bit of ego involved. But I think the staff here has done a wonderful job explaining the opportunities that are available for combo tees or the opportunities that are available when you move up to the green tees. Uh, we measured it in Florida. It, we certainly had a 99% uh, response rate that it was more fun. Um, they did shoot lower scores, and there's a there's a nice migration here of our senior golfers moving from the whites to the combos to the greens, so that the game is more enjoyable. They continue to come out and, and play not just once a week and shoot 100, but play twice a week and shoot 85. And maybe we'll get them on that third time because our goal is to get them here get them here one more time per week, get them to stay an extra hour each time they come, and then your facility starts to generate the, those additional dollars, and then you can start building more tees, and then you can start building more tees, forward tees for the women. And it's just one of those things that, that takes effort, it takes uh, time, it takes money, and uh, this this club has certainly made a commitment to doing that for the sustainability of, of this club for another 100 years. Chris, just a couple of more before we let you go. And um, and we've talked about this in the past, but for those who haven't joined us in the past and heard this story, you spent three years at Oak Hill. One of our good friends here on the show is Sean McKeeley, won the 2003 PGA Championship on that golf course. Jack Nicklaus, Lee Trevino, Jason Duffner have all won either a PGA or a U.S. Open there as well. So it's one of the legendary golf courses that we have here in the U.S. Yeah. What are some of your favorite stories from your time being there or back in the early 2000s? Things that you've heard, things that you witnessed being around Oak Hill. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the the famous, the one that always, well, there's a couple that always stick out. Uh, one, one was regarding Craig, uh, when he was hired. Um, and they still tell the story. I know Craig has since retired and, uh, and the club has moved on. But when Craig was hired, his, you know, his father, Claude, was the pro at Wingfoot and Craig was, you know, in his mid twenties and, and, uh, he came, he went and interviewed for the Oak Hill job and, and a gentleman by the name of Bill Thaney, uh, was running the interview process and he said, Craig, we know you're the next sort of hot shot golf pro how do we know you're not going to just come here and just wait and buy your time and then be the next and then following your dad's footsteps at Wingfoot? and he looked them all in the eye and he said he said gentlemen i will make this my wing foot and he just knew that you know not everybody has the opportunity to live in mamaroneck new york or augusta georgia and and he was he was in charge of a, of a club in a community where this is where they lived and uh, this is what they could afford, and his job was to make Oak Hill their Wingfoot, like his dad had made Wingfoot legendary. And when I was coming here, you know, not everybody lives in Philadelphia or and can join Aronamink, and people live here in Lebanon or they live in uh, Lidditz or they live in Elizabethtown. And this is the Yankee Stadium, and this is what they can afford, and this is this is the club that that is the Yankee Stadium of the area, and it's my job to make this feel like this is their Oak Hill, this is their Augusta, and this is their Aronimus. And I really take that to heart. And every day that I come to work, you know, and even when I go home, my 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 thought process is how can I make this their favorite place to be 
every day. And we work towards that. And it takes, you know, it takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, it takes a lot of tireless effort and we get the staff to buy in and, and that's what we try and do here. Um, and then the other thing about that, which is more golf related, you know, we were watching when we we're getting ready for the 03 PGA, which is just this massive undertaking of, of membership volunteers and community volunteers. And you really see a community sort of bind together. And we were looking at video footage of the 80 U.S. Open. I think that Trevino won. And we watched Nicholas, who at the time was the longest hitter on tour. And we, we, we recorded what iron, what distance he hit into each hole and what iron he hit into each hole. And then we fast forwarded that to 2003 and we found who the longest hitter on tour was and what the average distance that a tour player drove the ball. And we, we, we tracked what they were hitting and what their seven iron distance was. And, and in order to get Oak Hill in 2003 to be the same golf course that it was in 1980, the golf course would have had to been lengthened to 8,700 yards. Wow. And it just reminds me, yeah, it reminds me that the game changed. The game has changed and that's okay. It doesn't mean that these old great coursers are, or dead and, and buried. It just means that, you know, the game has changed. We're never going to get golf course construction to match what tour players do. So our goal is to just grow the game with what you have and make it as accessible to everyone as you can and, and keep the game and the industry sustainable. And we had such a, a long period of, of over construction. And then we went through this period of contrition. I think that the industry now is right sized. Uh, junior golf is growing by, you know, more than 20%. Uh, the fastest growing golf in uh, growing sector in golf is women. So we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. We just need great golf professionals to, to maintain, uh, you know, good business practices, be stewards of the game, be stewards of the industry and, and, uh, and make their home club the best it can absolutely be so that those people feel so special that they want to come back every day and they want to spend more time there every week. Chris, before we let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the things you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's on social media? Oh, boy. Yeah, they can visit the club at www.lebcc.com, uh, lebcc.com. I'm on Twitter. I couldn't tell you what my handle is. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, have, uh, I have a handle for the club. It's LebCC Golf Shop. I know that. Um, but... You know, just uh, hit hit the website, uh, take a look at the club. Uh, it's got nice pictures. You'll see uh, right now we're trying to, to – we had our big event, Chris. We we, we have a four-day uh, better ball event, men's better ball event. It's been going on for 73 years. And last week, I don't know if you know, but we, we, we had a historic flood here. And the tournament's been postponed uh, for the first time in 73 years. So the tournament, instead of being last week, is now going to be contested at August 16 through 19. Uh because of the change of plans and because we have players coming in from more than 16 states, not everybody could make that second date. So there are there are spots available in the Sullivan. Uh, the entry form is available on lebcc.com right there on the main page. But they can get a good glimpse at the club, the activity level that we have. And, and we'd love to see uh, some people that might not have had a chance to play in the Sullivan this year or uh, last week maybe come up and, and see us in two weeks. There you go. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. It's been great catching up with you. I hope you'll come back and, and share more of your stories and your insights with us again real soon, my friend, because it's been too long since you've been a part of the show, but it's been great catching up with you tonight. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. It's always a pleasure to be with you. It's an honor. And thanks for all the, the, the great work you're doing in the golf industry and, 
and with your radio show. It's very we, golf professionals appreciate uh, the fact that you're out there speaking on our behalf and and getting our good guys and, and women uh, out there on the radio show and and growing the game. Well, I appreciate that very much, Chris. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up again soon. Okay. Be well. Have a nice PJ Championship. Thanks, Chris. You too. Take care. That is Chris Sheehan. Again, he's at Lebanon Country Club, and I encourage you to go online and check it out because from what I, the pictures that I was able to see on their website, it looks absolutely spectacular. It's one of those ones that uh, you just hope that uh, at some point in your life you get the opportunity to go out there and tee it up. And it sounds like they've got some some opportunities because, again, unfortunately, with with the rain that they've had up in that area, uh, they had to cancel that event. But uh, go online, check it out, and uh, hopefully we get to have Chris back on the show again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Keith Hirschland, I want to give a shout-out to a couple of our sponsors. First, folks, I have to tell you how excited I am about a new weapon that I've had in my golf bag now for a few months, and that's my new M4 driver from TaylorMade Golf. And if you haven't tried their new twist face technology, you're missing out. I don't know about you, but I don't hit every shot on the center of my club face, right? You don't do that every single time. After studying hundreds of thousands of swings from pros and amateurs like us, TaylorMade designed their new drivers to help protect us from our mishits and give us straighter distance. So whether your miss is on the low heel or the high toe, Twist Face helps bring the ball back to center, keeping the distance that we want and finding more fairways more often, right? I'm hitting more fairways than I ever have. And their new drivers are also the choice. Those are pretty good golfers you might recognize. It's played by Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, Dustin Johnson, Jason Day, John Robin, Justin Rose, to name just a few, and dominating the top ten out on tour. So if you haven't tried Twist Face, go hit it and get fit. It's in the new M3 and M4 drivers and only from TaylorMade. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back in making his fourth appearance with me here on Next on the Tee is my favorite author and one of my favorite individuals, and that's Keith Hirschland. Keith has become a wonderful friend of the show over the last couple of years. He's an Emmy Award-winning TV producer. He's produced shows for ESPN, ESPN2, and the Golf Channel. In fact, he was among the original people that started the Golf Channel back in 1995. He's also written three great books titled Cover Me, Boys, I'm Going In, Tales of the Tube from a uh, Broadcast Brat, which is one of my favorite books of all time. He's written two other books titled Big Flies, and his newest one is titled The Flower Girl Murder, which is getting rave reviews and winning awards everywhere. Every time I turn around twice, I'm reading about another great accolade from people who have read that book, and I am excited to have its author and my good friend Keith Hirschland back on the show with me again tonight. Hey, Keith, how are you, my friend? I'm great, Chris, and I was, uh, I'm thrilled to be with you, and I was so excited uh, when you reached out and, uh, and wanted me to come back on the show because it's always a pleasure to chat with you. No, I appreciate that very much, Keith. So, Keith, it, it's been a banner year in the Hirschland household. <laughs> if you don't mind, I want to start by spreading the great news about your lovely wife, Sarah, who recently was named CEO of the U.S. Olympic Committee. What a great honor for her. Can you share the story about how that came about? Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Um, uh, thank you very much for that. And I'll thank you on her behalf. Um, well, you know, she, uh, 
she was just doing her thing at the USGA, trying to, trying every day to make, you know, that organization better and golf a better game and doing what she can to, to grow the game of golf. And, uh, and some folks reached out to her, um, and wanted to know if she had any interest in, in, um, putting her a name in the hat for the, for the USOC CEO job. And, you know, we talked about it a little bit and it seemed like, uh, the perfect opportunity for her. It was going to take something special, I thought, for her to leave the USGA. And, um, you know, she thought, well, why not, you know, win or lose or draw, it's going to be great experience to go through this process. So uh, um, the entire process took about two and a half or three months. Um, a number of interviews. She met with a number of people, including all the board members of the USOC. And uh, when push came to shove, they called about two weeks ago and said, how would you like to come to Colorado Springs? So we're, uh, we're in the process of picking up our life and, and, uh, moving out west in the next couple of weeks. We're really excited. I mean, it, it, she's going to be, she's going to do a great job and she's really excited and, and it really is a great opportunity for her to, uh, to show the world what she can do. Yeah, well, I tell you what, I'm, I was tickled pink in various other colors when I saw the announcement come out. I thought, wow. That is absolutely outstanding. And I'm, I'm already, you know, the U.S. and the Olympic team and whether it's the winter or the summer are already a big deal to me and even a bigger deal now that we have golf back in, in the summer games. But, uh, it yep. even takes on that much more, uh, of a special meaning to me knowing that your wife is now the CEO of the USOC. So kudos to her. And I look forward to watching her success and uh, yeah. I'm sure she's going to do Thanks. great. It's, a lot, it's going to be a lot, it's going to be a lot of hard work, but she's up for the task and uh, very excited and, and can't wait to get to work. So thank you very much for the kind words. And Keith, for you, every time, like I mentioned a moment, every time I turn around <laughs> twice, the flower girl murder is winning, whether it's another award or getting another kudos or more five star ratings. That book has just absolutely dominated what I am seeing out on social media. Talk about what's going on with the book. Yeah, how about that? Uh, you know, it, it was one of those things that just, uh, it seems to have caught some people's fancy and I'm, I couldn't be more thrilled. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed writing it. It was a little, a little different, different twist for me. So, um, you know, it's my, it's my second mystery. Like you mentioned, Big Flies was the first one. And, and I think the, the nicest thing that people have said to me about the book is that it's, they think it's better than the first one. And it's, that for me, it's like anything else that you do, you always want to get better and better. And to have people think that, uh, that I'm, I'm improving as a writer, that, uh, you know, that makes, that, that makes all the difference because it makes you want to turn around and write the next one, which I'm in the middle of doing now. So it's, it's a blast. It's amazing. And, and I, you know, I couldn't be more surprised. And at the same time, I couldn't be happier. For folks that haven't joined us on either show, this one or Thursday Night Tailgate, when you've joined us to talk about a little bit about the book, can you give them a flavor for what it's about? You mentioned, we mentioned it's a mystery, but can you give them a little yeah. bit of a, a flavor for what that book's all about? Sure. It's kind of a, you know, it started out as I try and everything that I've written, and obviously the memoir was the first one, and everything that I've written, I've, I've kind of culled from personal experience. And when I sat down to write Flower Girl Murder, I thought it was going to be about, um, mainly about, uh, a TV newsman who, um, had the opportunity to go back and go from being an on-air talent news, you know, news reader 
reporter to uh, becoming the news director at the television station that his father started in in northern Nevada. And along the way, he befriends a police detective who has come across uh, a murder of a woman named Daisy Burns. And that's uh, how we got the title, The Flower Girl Murder, because the cops in the cop shop, as, as this detective struggles to solve the murder, keep kind of teasing him and say, asking him why he hasn't solved the flower girl murder yet. So uh, he enlists the help of his uh, newscaster friend to help get the word out. And in the beginning, when I first started writing it, I was envisioning the newsman, whose name is Lancaster Hart, that he was going to be at the heart of this whole thing and actually get caught up in the web of the murderers and get, you know, and, and I had all this, you know, in my mind. And as I was writing, it took a completely different turn. So that's not exactly what happens, but he does help in his own way. Uh, but then the detective Mark Allen actually becomes kind of the, the star of the show. And, and, um, he, he, uh, he works his way through the, through everything to try and solve this murder. And, um, you know, it, I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end, but, um, some people have been very satisfied with it and other people haven't. So, <laughs> and I guess that's good, right? Right. <laughs> Keith, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Sure. And, um, as, as, uh, I've been following you out there on social media, I, I know you've had, uh, I don't know if concerns is the right word, maybe some disappointment in the way that golf has been broadcast and publicized in the way that whether we as fans of the game have been tuning in and, and maybe not appreciating, I think some of the things that you see do you think we should have a greater appreciation for, particularly some of the LPGA events that have been broadcast earlier this year? What do you think the networks and we as viewers are missing? Um, you know, I, that's that's a hard, that's kind of a hard question to answer because everybody's got, I think everybody's got a different different taste and everybody's got different wants and needs when they sit down and watch a golf tournament on TV. My, my, my biggest problem these days is that they all, all the broadcast seems to feel and look and be the same. Um, you know, it was one of the one things that one of the actually many things I loved about the golf channel, um, when we were there, but, um, we had, our team had, had a ton of autonomy and we were able to, um, you know, kind of pretty much write our own ticket and do, if we had a crazy idea, there was nobody to say, oh, you can't do that. We were like, let's try this crazy idea. It's a Thursday on the Nike tour or it's a, you know, a Friday afternoon on a, on a, on an opposite event on the PGA tour or, you know, at the time there were, you know, less than a million people watching the golf channel. So why wouldn't you try anything and everything? And I think some things, you know, some things we tried stuck. Some things we tried were terrible. Um, but we tried them all and, you know, I think now people get into kind of a, they get into kind of a, kind of a rut. And that was one of the things I loved about Fox's uh, approach was they really took the technology to a new level. And I think that has forced other networks to do the same. But now, again, after two years or three years of that, they tend to now all look the same and nobody's pushing that envelope again to say, well, what can we do next? So, um, yeah, you know, I think that's the main thing. I think, I think, I think producers and and executive producers are a little gun shy about you know pushing the envelope. I don't know if I answered your question, but <laughs> no, absolutely. So, 
Something else I wanted to get your insights on, Keith, it's, it's, this year seems like it, it's been all Tiger all the time. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's been warranted because, you know, he's been right in the thick of a few of the tournaments like the Open Championship just a couple of weeks ago or the Quicken Loans a few weeks before that. He was near the top mm-hmm. of a leaderboard. But I think there are many times when he's not the story, but he's made to be, even at the Open. Right now, one of the, my disappointments, Keith, is like Sunday evening after Francesco Molinari had won the Open, ESPN had three separate headlines about the Open, all yeah. of them about Tiger. Not even a mention, oh, by the way, Francesco Molinari won this event. And I, and I know yeah. that Tiger moves the needle a lot, but it, it, is it good for the game that the media kind of puts all of its golf eggs, if you will, in the Tiger basket? Um. No, simply it's a simple simple answer. But um, again, it's it's not that it's easy to do, but it's kind of easy to do. I mean, I know when I watch, I want to know where he is, what he's doing. Now, I agree with you. I mean, once he's out of an event, or once he's you know not in contention, and certainly if he doesn't win, that should the you know the bottom line ticker should not be the first four things that they scroll across the screen about the golf tournament should not be about Tiger Woods. But, um, you know, it's just one of those, it's, it's one of those things where you, you are, are you wondering where he is and what he's doing if they're not showing him, I guess. And that's where, you know, I think that with all these platforms and, and, and avenues that networks and, and, tours and people can use to to watch and broadcast and and showcase the various talents on the PGA Tour and the LPGA Tour. You know, it's like, if you want to watch Tiger, go here. And we're going to show you every shot Tiger hits here. If you want to watch the golf tournament, which will include shots of Tiger Woods, but not 90% Tiger Woods, then stay where you are. You know, and I think that people have talked about that for a long time, but I think now with the technology and and the can you know the, the 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 technology of bringing the sights and sounds from the golf course to the home screen and and cameras are getting lighter and and less expensive and and the quality is just as good and I think that and all these you know all these networks now have have apps and platforms and NBC you know just signed up with the PGA Tour to broadcast PGA Tour live stuff. I think that's the direction that eventually it's going to get. I just maybe it isn't getting there quick enough when it maybe could. And, and Keith, as a producer of a live golf tournament, does it get difficult at all to juggle between, you know, your producer's hat and being a golf fan at the same time, maybe you've got a preference for this guy or that. I mean, how how much is going on in your head thinking, okay, I know I got to get a shot of this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy, and now you're roaming around from hole to hole to hole. How do you keep that in your, you know, boy, I'm just a fan of the game, but boy, I really wish I could see this sort of thing. You know, you, you as a producer, I'm assuming you got to have all of us in mind. As a fan, you may have this one or this guy in mind. How do you juggle all of that? Um, you know, I think you have to approach it. Um, I had, I think I had, I was really, really fortunate that, and, uh, you know, some people might disagree with this assessment, but I, I had really good teachers in Don Olmeyer and Andy Young and Steve Beim who, um, you know, their, their main charge to me as I was 
starting out producing in the, you know, in the late 1980s and early 1990s was, you know, find your story and then tell your story. But in the, in the, in, in between the storylines in golf, as you know, there's plenty of time to do a number of other things. But make sure that your main story is the thing that you have that are, that you're covering live. And it takes about, you know, 15 to 25 seconds to show a golf shot on television. Um, there is a lot of time, in my opinion, still wasted on, uh, players, showing players that aren't ready to hit yet. And for me, it's like that, that unless you're, you're talking about Sunday, leaders on Sunday, that's a whole different story because your story changes. But on Thursday and Friday, Saturday morning, uh, you know, as, you know, things are, are, are progressing along in the event, there is plenty of time to show a ton of players. And that's kind of what our philosophy always was at when I worked golf for ESPN and then when I went to the golf channel. And I think it's quite frankly, I think it's Tommy Roy's philosophy. And I think he does a pretty good job. He does a really, really good job of showing a lot of players, especially on a Thursday, Friday, and especially of a major. Um, so I think that for me, um, what, did I have favorites? Absolutely. Did I have guys I absolutely did not like? I sure did. Um, there were guys that drove me crazy that I didn't like that, you know, I, I tell the story now because I can that, you know, it was like the joke in the truck was the first time we're going to see this guy is when he lifts the trophy on Sunday afternoon. (laughs) 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 Which that never actually really happened, but it came close a couple of times. But, um, you know, you just want to keep to me. And I think I've told you this before. Um, you know, golf is a, golf is inherently a slow sport. So the way that you can make pace, that you can have pace in a golf broadcast, in my opinion, are two ways. The producer can provide it by going from shot to shot to shot. And the director can provide it by using different cameras once he gets to the shot that the producer wants him to show. So that can create kind of a pace in my mind in the viewers when I'm, wa- I'm watching golf on TV. It speeds the, go- the sport up a little bit. When you, when you drop anchor, um, and you just show a guy walking around as he's lining up a putt, or you know that one particular player is really slow, but you get to him 30 or 45 seconds before he's going to hit the shot anyway. Um, that just drags the whole broadcast down. So that's where I think the producers can do a little better job of creating pace for the viewer. And also you end up showing more golfers because in the end, everybody that's playing in that golf tournament has a fan or a family member or somebody out there who's rooting for him, who's cheering for him, who wants to see him on TV. And I think TV does a disservice when they don't show as many players as they possibly can. Keith, just a couple of more before we let you go, and and, and to this in the same vein, if you will, did you ever have sponsors, players, agents, their entourage, whatever, kind of in your ear, following you around, going, you know, hey, my guy's not getting enough airplay. You need to get my guy on TV more. Uh, all, all the time. <laughs> um, oh, it was more like, why aren't you showing my guy more? Um. And it wasn't just agents and, you know, player reps and club reps. It was moms and sisters <laughs> and, you know, and brothers. I mean, we used to get, you know, and especially when, you know, when Golf Channel first started, I think people had this misconception that, oh, 
finally, it's the golf channel, which means they're going to show every single shot of every single player who hits a shot during a golf tournament. Well, you know, obviously, your your listeners are smart enough, and everybody, almost everybody in the world is smart enough to know that's an impossibility, you know. But at the same time, I think that's what some people expected. And so we got a lot, I got a lot of people coming up to my, coming up to me and our team and, you know, saying, why aren't you showing this guy or why aren't you showing that guy? He finished tied for 17th. It was his first top 20 of the year. He never, he didn't ever get on TV. And, you know, I felt their pain, but at the same time, you know, I, I, you, you can't show everybody. So that it, it made, it always made me feel a little bad. But I also knew that I did the best I could to show as many folks as I could. So Keith, before our, we let you go, our, with, fr- our friend, our friend Peter Kessler would yell at me too. He'd tell me, "Why aren't you showing?" Is that right? <laughs> really? Yeah, oh, sure, sure. Because he had favorites too. You know, I mean, everybody has it. Like I said, everybody has a favorite. So, you know, yeah. we, we took it in stride. I think a little bit, a little bit of that was ribbing, because Peter was good at that too. So, Keith, as we look ahead to the PGA Championship next week, got to get your thoughts. Who are you expecting to oh, see boy. on the top of the leaderboard on Sunday at Bell Reef? Man, you, you always do this to me and put me on this spot, um, which I like, by the way. Um, you know, that's a great question. <laughs> Bell Reef's a great golf course, um, and so many people are playing really well. Um, it's not going to surprise me to see, uh, you know, it's it's funny how Jason Day's kind of disappeared, and you keep expecting yes. him to do something, and he you know he he tends to do something quite a bit in that event. Um, I I wouldn't be surprised to see you know John Rahm play really well, Kevin Kisner play really well again at another major. Um, you know I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be Dustin or I don't think it's going to be a bomber. I'm not you know I I played that golf course a couple of times and been there a few other times and it's just it's more of a parkland golf course and i don't see that but i'm you know what chris i'm usually wrong so <laughs> um you know i think it's going to be a great event and it's you know it's going to be the last one in august so uh it'll i'm sure it'll go out with a bang well keith let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing whether it's getting a copy of any one of your books being online on your website or trying to keep up with you on social media as well. I am. Thanks, Chris. I am. Uh, my website is Keith K E I T H Hirschland, all one word Hirschland H I R S H L A N D dot com. Uh, it's got all three books. You can find out about all three books there. Um, I am on Instagram at K H H Author and Facebook is Keith Hirschland Author. So um, those are really the three main places where people can find out. And we've just, I'm going to toot my own horn here a little bit. We just got, after six years, uh, Beacon Publishing Group has decided that they're interested in Cover Me Boys. I'm going in. So that's going through a little bit of a refurbish now. And it's going to be out um, with a with a publishing company, Beacon Publishing Group. So I'm really excited about that. And I think in the near future, we'll be able to see Cover Me Boys going in in a lot of bookstores and libraries and airport bookshops and all that fun stuff. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, as am I, because as you know, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the show, you know this even before we got to know each other, that that's my favorite book of all time. 
and uh, I've read it multiple that. times. And uh, um, as a matter of fact, I'm looking at a copy of it right here on my bookshelf because it is absolutely spectacular. For those listeners, and we've touted it on this show, but if you want to understand what goes on behind the camera and some great stories growing you know, as you were growing up and your father and putting all of that together and getting on ESPN and the Golf Channel, all those things, it's a great read, and it flies by. It's a big book. But I tell you what, it goes by in a heartbeat, and it's fantastic stuff, Keith. Well, I'm glad you like it, and I appreciate the kind words. Well, Keith, thanks again for spending time with me again tonight. I really always look forward to the opportunity to talk with you. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon and share more of your stories, more of your insights, and uh, all the great things that are going on for both you and your wife, Sarah. Congratulations again to both of you. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate it, and keep up the good work. As your previous guest said, you do a great service to sports fans and golf fans all across the country, and it's always a pleasure to be with you, and you're the best. I enjoy it because uh, you're one of the best interviewers I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with. Wow, I appreciate you saying that, Keith. You're fantastic. Take care, my friend. We'll catch up again soon. Look forward to it. See you, Keith. That is the great Keith Hirschland. Again, his last name is spelled H-I-R-S-H-L-A-N-D. So KeithHirschland.com is his site. And, uh, folks, again, not because he was on the show, but I love that book. It's just absolutely outstanding. And the two mysteries are, 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 you know, top notch as well. And again, like I say, if you, if you're out there on Twitter and you're looking for, you know, follow Keith or you, you're searching for him, I'm telling you, every time I turn around twice, Somebody else is talking about the Flower Girl murder and how great it is and a five-star rating and it's won this award or it's at the top of that list and it's a, it's an outstanding story. And uh, a lot of, like, you know, Keith alluded to a moment ago, part of the, the setup to it is stuff about him, right? He's, he's sort of, you know, relating his own history and then building characters and the way the story goes. But it's an outstanding read, and uh, Keith is, uh, you know, he's a great author, and he's a ten times better person. And I can't thank him enough for his time tonight. Look forward to getting him back on the show again real soon. All right, I've got a, my next guest, Terry Kaler, hanging on the line. Before I get to Terry, I want to remind you about a couple of our sponsors. First, I want to give a shout-out to our friends at Parbar. Parbar is, you know, Parbar Golf is focused on better nutrition, help you play better golf. Parbar is the first bar of its kind developed specifically for golfers based on nutritional science that provides the sustained even energy that golfers need to go out there and play the best that we can right now. The company has introduced a unique hydration product called Par Water that instantly converts water into an electrolyte drink. It's got one gram of sugar and it's all natural. Par Water is a cap that's filled with you know, filled with the powder and the electrolyte powder that you need, and you screw right into the top of your water bottle, you shake it up, no mess, snaps right on, and it's going to give you the energy that you need to help get you through the round. It's going to replace the salt that you lose through sweat. Studies by American Institute of Biotechnology have shown that 12, you get 12% loss in distance and 90% loss in accuracy when golfers are even mildly dehydrated. Drink par water before, during, and after your round. It's all natural, tastes great, comes in lemon or mango flavors. You can buy par bars or par water online at parbargolf.com, and it's also available at many pro shops around the country. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to bobbyjones.com. Their semi-annual sale is going on now. It is the perfect opportunity to change things up layer upon layer. 
They make style easy. Find carefully coordinated outfits in a variety of colors and options. The Bobby Jones brand de- delivers excellence. As genuine as the legend himself, right? Their collection of golf performance and lifestyle apparel for men and women are absolutely outstanding. Go online to bobbyjones.com to see for yourself. All right, now back with me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is Terry Kaler. Let me remind you about Terry's background. He's from Cuero, Texas, which is a small town southeast of San Antonio and known for being the turkey capital of the world. Terry graduated with his degree in marketing from Texas A&M. He was the founder and president of Ray Cook Golf back in 1995. 2011, he became the founder and president of Score Golf, which produced some very innovative wedges with the V-Soul design, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute. 2014, he revitalized the Ben Hogan golf brand and became their president and CEO for a couple of years. He has over a half a dozen golf club patents and nearly 100 iron, wedge, and putter designs to his credit. Terry has been known over the years as the wedge guy and has written numerous articles and blogs about wedge play and about that title itself. And I am thrilled he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Terry, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. It's always fun. Terry, it's it's been a minute since we've gotten to talk to you. Catch us up. What's been going on with you so far this year? Well, I um, tried retirement, but I found out you can only fish and play golf so much. And <laughs> and there were some things in wedges that I still haven't done that I still think that's a, the most underdeveloped category in all of the equipment front. <clears throat> I can go into more detail on that if you'd like. Yeah. So Please. I. Uh, I started working on some new wedge designs I'm real excited about. They'll be out somewhere uh, toward the end of this year or first of next year. Uh, revolutionary stuff. Nobody's ever done anything like this in the wedge category before, so I'm quite excited about it. Yeah, you know, Terry, when, when you and I were talking you know, the other day, one of the things you said to me was, with all of the innovations around drivers and iron sets that we've seen over the last couple of decades, Wedges are still largely the same as they were back in the 1970s. Talk about why that is. Well, I can't, I'm not sure I really know why. Uh, I can explain, you know, that it is. And if you, if you peel off the graphics and you peel off the, the, the little nuances in soul and whatever, wedges of, of 2014, 2016, 18, Wedges of 1990s, wedges of 1970s, 60s, even 50s are essentially the same golf club. Uh, they've got a, a heavy low portion, a wide sole to, to funnel through the sand, um, you know, one size fits all shaft and, and a very thin face in the upper two thirds of the golf club. I don't know why the industry has, has hung to this design. I have some theories of it. But what, what the resulting, I think every listener you have can relate to this. When you have that shot and you, that wedge shot and you feel impact high on the face and you can always feel it. And you, before you even look up, you know, it's going to come up high and it's going to come up short. And I'm just appalled that we haven't found a way to give you at least as much forgiveness of impact misses on your wedges as we give you in your irons and your, and in your fairways and your drivers. And as a result, golfers, and my feedback and research I've done over the 30 years I've been in this industry, 35, um, golfers are frustrated with their inability to hit it as close as they think they should, you know, inside wedge range, whether that's, you know, 120 or 100, whatever, wherever wedge range starts for you. Um, 
you feel like, man, this is where I really need to be able to take it to the golf course. And golfers are frustrated by their inability. And I, for one, believe it's very heavily based on the equipment you've got in your hand. So, Terry, how can we assess if we have the right set of wedges in our bag? You talk about how it's a standard shaft has been the thing now for however many years, right? So if with so many different head designs and, and the, you know, all the different shafts out there and the, and, and the grip length and all of those things, how do we know? Because typically, and I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think typically most of us are going in, we either get the, the set of wedges that comes with the iron set that we bought, or buying them essentially off the rack, right? How do we know if we've got the right bounce, the right shaft, the right head? How do we know if, we, if we're if we good or what we've got? You're never, you're, there's no way you're going to hit this ball close because the, the wedges you've got are all wrong for you. Well, I think there's a, a, a general um, – I think there are three or four general basics on, on selecting wedges. The first thing you want to do – is you want to manage the, the the between club gap in your yardages. So the first thing you need to do is go take your pitching wedge that came with your irons. Almost everybody plays a set matching pitching wedge. And those clubs in today's world are 44 to 46 degrees. 45 is the most common. And find out on just a good, comfortable wedge swing. Go out on the golf course, go out to a driving range, go out to a ball field, wherever you can. And hit 10 or 15 balls and go walk down there. You know, leave your stand bag or something back where you hit them from and walk down there with your range finder and go, how far do I really genuinely hit a pitching wedge? And then you need to, to, uh, to go do some research, find out what is the loft of my pitching wedge. And you're going to probably find if you've got a set of irons that's not a, a muscle back blade and that hadn't been, you know, that's been bought in the last 10 years or so you're going to find that pitching wedge around 45 degrees. And let's say that your 45-degree pitching wedge goes 120. That, that was your number. Well, then you need a, a, a 108 to 110 club, and you need a, a, a 98 to 100 club, and you need to have these manageable gaps. And that probably means going out and finding you a really nice 48 or 49-degree wedge and then a 52 to 54-degree wedge and, and maybe a 56 to 58-degree wedge. And, and everybody's distance profile makes that gapping different. The second thing you should look at is what kind of shaft do you have in your irons? Because the off-the-rack wedge you're buying is going to have a stiff steel standard weight shaft, weighs 120, 130 grams. The odds are your mid-handicap, even you know high single-digit golfers are now playing 100 to 105-gram lightweight steel in their, in their irons or maybe playing graphite in their irons. And this gives a really big disconnect in feel, balance, performance, swing speed between that, you know, aftermarket wedge, regardless of who makes it, you know, and the irons in your bag. I call it the seamless transition. I want all my clubs to feel alike. And if my wedges are 20, 30, 40 grams heavier than my short irons, I'm not going to have that seamless transition. You know, put, put a similar grip on your wedges or the same grip that you have on your irons so the feel from club to club to club is consistent for you. Make sure the angles are adjusted. That is all something you can do, but it doesn't address my pet peeve, which is the design of the wedge head itself. And, and I really challenge you or anybody, walk into a golf store and look at the wedges from all the major brands 
peel away the graphics and the cosmetics and look at where the mass is in that golf club. It's all down in the lower part of the golf club. And this is why tour players, you know, hit the ball really low in the club head because they get the most out of that wedge. My experience is most recreational players hit the wedge more up in the center of the face. And what we've done, <clears throat> independent test after independent test, live golfers, you know, Iron Byron, and the smash factor, the delivery of energy from the wedge to the ball, from the third groove to the sixth groove to the ninth groove, is dramatically different, which is why those high face impacts come up short. It's a deficiency of the golf club. I'd be very candid about it. And you can practice till you're blue in the face, but whether you're a tour player or a 20 handicapper, if you hit a modern wedge you know, up high in the face, it's not going to go as far as a, as a well-struck shot hit low in the face. It's just not going to. I find that kind of strange that our industry you know, really hasn't hasn't addressed that scoring club, you know, except in bounce options, which is a peeve of mine, and, you know, some little mumbo-jumbo about spin and grooves and that kind of thing, which, you know, even the numbers prove that, you know, what you can do with grooves within USGA rules is pretty minimal. Sorry, I get on my soapbox about that because we're all handicapped by these golf clubs we have in our bag. So let's talk about something you mentioned a moment ago, bounce, right? Because you've done something, the things that you created with the V-Soul that's very unique in the industry and very different from what we'll see on some of the, you know, the bigger brand name wedges. Talk about bounce, how it's important, if it's important at all, and what you've done to really kind of negate bounce. Well, the concept of bounce is the heart of the sand wedge when Gene Sarazen is credited with winning it in the late 30s. and so that the club would reject out of the sand and and get the ball out of the sand, splash it out up onto the green. And that was great. And sand wedges through the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even into the 60s, sand wedges were used out of the bunkers, period. Um, ben Hogan wrote in his book, Power Golf, that there are certain shots around the greens that a sand wedge is very handy, uh, a very handy tool. But he pitched mostly with this pitching wedge, which back then was 50 or 52 degrees. But we've turned the sand wedge into a full-swing golf club, and then we've created higher loft wedges in the high 50s and low 60 degrees. We've created lower loft wedges, but we made them all look like a sand wedge with this big flange and all the weight low in the club. Bounce is what causes the club to reject out of the turf. And any club that you're going to hit down on the ball with, whether it's a 4-iron or an 8-iron or a pitching wedge or a sand wedge, has to have some degree of bounce or it's going to be a shovel. It's just going to dig a hole. The industry talks a lot about fitting bounce to the turf you're going to play, which I take offense to because I don't know anybody that plays the same turf all the time. Now, a tour player can go to the van if it if he's all prepared for a firm and fast golf course and it rains three inches on Wednesday night, he can go to the tour van and get a bunch of high bounce wedges that are just like his for free and play them that week. Well, we amateurs, we don't get to do that. The other thing, so how do you fit turf if turf is constantly changing, not just from day to day, but course to course, but hole to hole? I mean, heck, the same place on the, on, a, on any given hole can have soft turf on the side of the green where nobody walks opposite the cart path and firm turf between the green and the cart path where everybody packs it down walking. So I don't understand how I can fit turf if I don't know what the turf on the next shot's going to be. It's just a, it's kind of a rhetorical question. How can I fit something I don't know what it's going to be? 
And then they talk about fitting your swing path. My belief is that and from 60,000 golfer interviews and my fitting uh, matrices that I've had through from Eidolon to score to Hogan, I've had 60,000 interviews with golfers, and they tell me I vary my swing path, either on purpose or, in, or accidentally, because I'm a 15 handicapper. I don't take the same divot every time. Or I'm an accomplished player. Sometimes I hit down more steeply on the ball. If I'm going to fit your swing path, don't go changing it on me because my fitting is going to be off, right? So in 1990, actually, I was playing golf at St. Andrews in Scotland with my brother in a wonderful trip in 1990. And, and my sand wedge I had taken over there was really not very well suited to the tight turf. And I went into Ocarloni's golf shop there off the 18th. And I saw he had a grinding machine. I asked him if I could bring my wedge back in. I just had this idea, and I butchered this wedge that I had been playing. And it worked beautifully. It looked ugly, but it worked beautifully. And that spurred me to create what was called the dual-bounce sole. It's been called the V-sole. Now, I call it the Kaler sole. I put a very uh, severe, if you will, 18, 20, 30-degree bounce on the first quarter-inch, three-eighths of an inch of the sole, and then a very low bounce in the primary part of the sole. And that that sole design and the many iterations I've been through for 30 years, it just works no matter what kind of lie you're in. And to me, now that lets me take bounce out of the equation and lets you focus on getting the right shaft, getting the right gapping, you know, and building a club head that gives you consistent trajectories and consistent distance, which is a premise of mine that I've been chasing for 30 years that with these new wedges, I'm going to be able to do some things with that part of the performance of a wedge that have never been done before. And Terry, just like you mentioned a moment ago, you've probably interviewed more golfers than probably anybody on the planet to get feedback on golf club performance. So, you know, as you talk about bounce and that sort of, what are some of the other things that you've heard from, you know, the rest of, you know, we amateurs or, and even the golf, you know, golf pros that have come back to you that you thought, you know what? That is an important thing that we haven't thought about before that we need to take into consideration. Well, you know, one thing, one thing I found, Chris, is that golf professionals and even more so professional golfers spend inordinate amounts of their time with their wedges in their hands. Um, because they have to or they can't compete on the tour. I mean, you've got to be very good up and down from all kind of lies and all kind of everything. So these guys are pretty resistant to being given a wedge that the ball reacts entirely differently off the golf club. And, you know, the new the new wedges I'm building, they're not built for tour players. I, I'm just not concerned with them because, in my opinion, other than the power curve, there is no place the tour player's game differs from ours more than wedge play. These guys are magical around the greens because they spend untold hours with the wedges in the hand. So when you give them a wedge, the ball reacts differently, flies a little lower, spins a little more, spins a little less, whatever. It screws their whole short game touch up because they know that so well. So I'm looking for the, the guy that's 5, 8, 10, 12, 20 handicap, 30 handicap, who's trying to hit a more penetrating trajectory. He's trying to hit like he sees the better players hit. He's trying to get, you know, consistent distance control where, you know, that gap wedge goes 95 to 98 every time he hits it solid. It doesn't sometimes go 110, sometimes 85 because he hit it a little high on the face. This is what I'm trying to do is help because golfers have, have expressed to me through these interviews, 
that's the, the weakest part of my game is I should be better inside wedge range, whether that's 120 or 130 or, you know, 90, whatever your wedge range is. Golfers feel like they should be better. And what I've heard thousands of them say is, you know, I've tried all the best wedges. I've tried brand A, brand B, brand C. I'm just a bad wedge player. And my answer is, but you've tried the same golf club with three different brand names on it. I mean, I'm, I, I just what I, I mean, this is my opinion. This is what I believe from looking at these golf clubs. There's no secret in a wedge. You look at it and it's a lump of metal molded to a certain shape and you can see where the weight is. And there have been a few little tweaks to, to try to put a little weight higher in the club, but nobody's really moved it as far as they want. I think, again, I'm a very opinionated guy from my observations, but as long as the big companies have to prove their product on the tour, they can't afford to make dramatically different changes in the wedges because the tour guys are going to resist that because it means they have to totally relearn, you know, these years and years of skills. So, you know, I think that, that if I can give you a sole that works pretty much everywhere and then we can get your gapping right, I can give you a club head design that launches the ball consistently on a lower angle, a more consistent angle, whether you hit it on the third groove, the sixth groove, the ninth groove, it's going to go about the same distance. I'm going to give you the same forgiveness in your wedges vertically as I'm giving you in that big driver. You hit it out on the toe, the heel, high or low, and it's still a pretty good shot. Why can't I do that? I, I can do that with wedges with this new technology. So now that you've got us all excited about what you're working on, when can we get it? Well, it's not ready for, for you know, reveal yet. Um, that will probably be uh, in the fall, September, October. We'll begin to reveal the name of the company and, and, and what these wedges are all about. We'll begin to tell the story. Uh, we, we, would, we think there's a possibility they may be available for purchase by November, but we're targeting uh, January. Uh, this is some technology nobody's ever built a golf club with, and so it's it doesn't come real easy. It's not just another forging or casting. Um, so uh, it's going to be a very exciting thing, and and I would love to come back on the show and 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 you know let your guys be among the first to, to hear about it when we're ready. And um, I'll probably I, I I wrote you mentioned that my wedge guy. I wrote a blog called the Wedge Guy for God something like seven or eight years. I wrote. 700 articles about wedge play and mostly about wedge play. I talked about the mental game and scoring and um, I'm, I'm about to resurrect that. Um, I built the shell of a new site. I've got to figure out how to get all the, the, the spam feedback <laughs> weeded out of it first, but um, I'll be starting to talk about it on the, on the wedgeguy.com within a few weeks. Well, Terry, I'm sure I speak on behalf of every one of my listeners. Uh, clearly, we're we're excited about you know the concept of what you're doing. I, I appreciate the thought that you'll you'll come back and tell us you know let us be amongst the first to hear about it because uh, you know based on everything that you've done over the course of your career, whether that was at Score or at Ben Hogan, um, it's been outstanding stuff. I you know and I told you this when when you and I first met. That uh, when I got you know my first set of Vsol wedges in my hand, the very first shot I, I ever hit was about a you know a 30 yard pitch shot with uh, with my Ben Hogan uh, wedge, and it went right in the hole. And I, uh, I as you can imagine, <laughs> I, I was that. at that point. So uh, well, I remember you telling I'm me very that excited story. about I, what I, you're doing. 
Well, we are too, and and it's going to be a, a real exciting adventure and a good group of people involved, and 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 I'm going to get to focus strictly on innovation, and and this is uh, what's really rewarding to me. I, you know, my whole golf career, it's been about can I make a golf club that'll help people enjoy the game more, hit better golf shots more frequently with more reliability. And, um, and and if I can help golfers do that, then, you know, it, it helps me give back to the game that's given so much to me. Well, Terry, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight. I hope you'll come back again real soon so we can hear more about what you're working on and hopefully getting to a, a product that we can all go out and purchase and put in our golf bags. But thank you for, for giving us some insights on it and, the, and the, the things that you talked about tonight. And hopefully we get the opportunity to catch up with you again real soon. Well, we'll definitely do that, and uh, we'll stay in touch, and I'll keep you posted, Chris. I appreciate it, Terry. Take care. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up again soon. Thanks. Have a great evening, you and all your listeners. Thank you, Terry. That is Terry Kaler. And again, folks, when you think about a guy who's you know really you know, almost singularly focused on on the wedges, and again, like I say, you guys know that I've been playing Ben Hogan, and and we've done some things with TaylorMade as well, more on the on the driver side. But uh, I've been playing the Ben Hogan PTX irons that Terry had every bit to do with creating that in that V-sole design, and I absolutely love those irons and those. And again, the wedges that came along with it are absolutely outstanding stuff. So thinking that Terry has now come up with something that's going to take that to the next level. And be even better? Goodness knows. Can't wait for that to happen. So we'll keep in touch with Terry. Hopefully we get the privilege of having him back on the show again real soon. All right, folks. It is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. My sincere thanks again go out to Chris Sheehan, Keith Hurslin, and Terry Taylor for joining me tonight. Uh, and thank you for tuning in and being a part of the show as well. We can't thank you enough for, for listening in and being a, you know, a part of our Next on the T family. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook, Next on the T with Chris Mascara. Right there, you can give me your comments, you know, share any questions. If you've got a question for, for Terry or for Keith or any of our guests that were, you know, tonight or that you've seen that have been on the show before or by going on to our website, nextonthetea.net, and you happen to see who our, you know, our guest schedule is going to be. If you've got some questions, let me know. Be glad to get those questions answered for you. Please also check out our sister show on the football side, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazari. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live right here on Blog Talk Radio, and that show like this one also available as a free podcast over on iHeartRadio, on Podbean, on the Armed Forces Radio Network. On Thursday Night Tailgate, we are joined by five NFL legends who come on and share their stories from their playing days, plus give us their insights into what's going on around the NFL today. We also highlight two players doing great things in their community in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. You can find that show, again, online at ThursdayNightTailgate.com, this show next on the T.net, or you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free on Podbean and, like I say, on iHeartRadio, and to give us a listen over on the Armed Forces Radio Network as well. Can't thank those folks enough. We can't thank you enough for choosing to listen to the show today. We, we appreciate you guys the very most. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. been listening to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors and media members go to tell their stories 
Join us the same time every Tuesday to hear more stories about the game we love from people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.